0: As a kid, I was spellbound by Dad's telling of the events, but by the mid-1990s, when I was in my 40s, I was reckoning with a complicated man I knew him to be. He was known for telling stories that entertained his fans, but I'd learned as an adult that some of those stories were exaggerated and others simply untrue. While his tales calcified into family myth, I no longer knew whether to trust them or his tears.
1: This is Daring to Tell, where writers read their true stories of personal daring and talk about the interminglings of writing and living. I'm your host, Michelle Rado.
0: Nothing's gonna make me brave. and Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave Except doing what makes me scared
1: One thing that I am almost always reaching for in every episode and kind of throughout my whole entire life is bigger truths. I think I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of people are reaching for that in the books that we read and in the stories that we tell. Except... In our day-to-day lives, I feel like we are tiny little ants wandering around on a giant atlas, very involved in the tasks and details of our day-to-day lives. And we can't always see the bigger pathways that get worn through those day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year travels. And sometimes we can't find the larger truths until we look backward through the paths that were trod before us to see the stories of the people who raised us and the ones who raised them and backward and backward through time. Gretchen Charrington is one of those curious and intrepid souls who decided She had to investigate her past to tug at the loose ends of her family's mythology about a grandfather historically wronged. The setting for this historical wronging was the startup of what we know today as Hormel Foods. Except in its beginnings, it was the eponymously named company of its founder, George Hormel. And yes, he was known then as Hormel, a poor boy turned butcher turned meat packer, and that in itself is a very compelling story of an early entrepreneur. Gretchen's grandfather, who died before she was born, was one of the top executives in this burgeoning company, helped grow it, until there was a huge embezzlement, and her grandfather was taken down in its aftermath. Was he wronged? Was he culpable? And how did this occurrence send shockwaves through this family into subsequent generations? And what does it mean to us today to understand the truth of what happened to those who came before us? That is our story today. It is a brand new memoir just launched this very month in June of 2023. One heads up. Gretchen shares a brief description of sexual abuse. It is short, but I do not want it to catch you off guard. Here she is and our conversation today on Daring to Tell. Gretchen Charrington, it is great to have you here. And I am very excited to say that the day that this podcast will Post will launch is also your pub day <laughs> yes. for your brand new memoir that we're talking about today, The Butcher, The Embezzler, and The Fall Guy, a family memoir of scandal and greed in the meat industry. Whoa, what a <laughs> title. Thank you for being here.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. We've we've had a few good ones leading up to
1: this, so I I know it's going to be a lot of good stuff.
0: Actually, maybe
1: just tell me a little bit before we. I, I want to hear pre-book, honestly. Like, what got you to to writing this? But that title is fantastic. <laughs> it says it all. Like, did you come up with the title before the
0: writing it or after? Yeah, really, in the process of my publisher designing the cover, I had been using a working title of Too Big to Fail, which, you know, from reading the book is one of the themes. Um, However, it's really sort of a small theme in the context of the whole book. And my publisher really wanted something that was punchy. She also wanted to make sure that all three men were kind of Examined and described in the title. Mm-hmm. And so she came up with the butcher, the embezzler, but didn't know how to characterize my grandfather quite. Mm-hmm. And so I loved it immediately the butcher, the embezzler. And I thought those worked well for both George Hormel, who didn't want to always be a butcher, he wanted to be a meat packer, and for obviously the embezzler, Ransom J. Thompson. Who was clearly the embezzler. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was a little stuck on how to describe my grandfather and what I wanted it to convey about him and his role in the title itself. And so I turned it over to my writing group. And I have a wonderful writing group with three other She Writes Press authors. And one day we just brainstormed all kinds of ideas to go with the butcher, the embezzler. And frankly, I can't remember what they all were. Mm-hmm. And I don't really remember whether it was me or one of the other women who actually nailed the fall guy. But as soon as we did, I knew it was right. And I have to say that I, everybody to whom I've told the title has just been, oh, my goodness, what a fabulous title. So, you know, I'm very pleased with it because it clearly works for readers as well as marketers and publicists and all of it.
1: Exactly. I was going to say, you want something memorable. And so yes. there's this, I mean, even just thinking of it now, there's, you know, the childhood, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Yes. And so it's yes. going to stick in people's heads. Yes. And so the the next thing, you're already setting us up with some of the characters, the main three people in this right. book that we hear about, which has... Oh, so much to do with your family history. Very interesting. And I'd like to get just a little bit more to talk about you, your own background, professionally and personally. And I was thinking about how two things that seem about as unrelated as anything could possibly be would be business And poetry.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Isn't it strange? Right. Yeah. And yet I really now, looking backwards, can see the thread of connection. Mm -hmm. But uh, So I grew up in this very literary family. My father was Richard Eberhardt. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and U.S. poet laureate under Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy. And he filled our homes with... You name it, <laughs> you know, these iconic literary folk from Robert Frost to Anne Sexton and Ellen Ginsberg to Richard Wilbur to James Dickey. And really covered basically almost all of the 20th century because he was born in 1905 and didn't die till 2005. And so he had a 70 year career in which to gain friendships and, and, you know, have a network around him. So Mm -hmm. I grew up with, in a way, I certainly couldn't have named it at the time, but a really powerful group of people around me. It was clear to me, even as a little kid, that they sucked the air out of the room. (laughs) Mm. Again, I wouldn't have had that phrase. But, you know, that it was pretty hard to get my word in edgewise, or it was pretty hard to find a little attention now and then. Yeah. Except from a few of them. But in general, you know, the soiree that occurred in our homes nearly every night, a living room full of poets and writer novelists and artists of various kinds, was clearly where the action was in our family, And I think, you know, as I look back now, certainly I got it in my bones that where the power was in the family was with my father. Mm -hmm. It's not to say my mother didn't have her own form of power, and she did. But when I thought about who did we wait dinner for, it was my dad. Who did Mm. we have take over the living room every night? It was my dad. You know, those kinds of things. He he traveled quite a bit. So, as I grew up, I frankly—and you know some of my personal story—wanted to get about as far away from my father <laughs> as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, after he molested me when I was seventeen,
1: yeah,
0: and sort of by extension, his friends and peers, even though none of them had done anything wrong to me, mm-hmm. you know, I was sick of the whole kit and caboodle of poets and artists who got away with things. And I found early in my adulthood as a hippie, frankly, Uh that I had some skill in organizing. And I was also very intrigued by people Mm -hmm. and how they operated within groups, be it a food co-op group, or we used to have a shared woodcutter. So there was sort of a woodcutting group Uh uh, in New Hampshire. (laughs) So these various groups, you know, I was fascinated by how people operated within them. And when I got my first real job, so to speak, one that was full time and had some responsibility attached to it beyond just, you know, sort of task oriented things, I quickly learned that I really enjoyed working in teams and I enjoyed structuring a new program, let's say, I I was in healthcare management. So structuring a new program or bringing my board along with where management wanted to go, those kinds Mm -hmm. of things resonated for me. And so after about 10 years of working in management, up to the level of CEO of a 100 person organization, not huge, but it had all the components that any CEO works with, marketing, finance, personnel, all of it. Mm -hmm. I branched out on my own and started my own consulting career. And that's another story. But it was in the beginning, I think, an effort for me to figure out how to make change happen inside organizations that wasn't traumatizing to the people in them. Mm -hmm. I had gone through a fairly traumatic reorganization process that failed. And I had felt traumatized in the process. And so in a business um, setting, like in, in a, a work setting. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, it was nothing physical or anything, but, right, but right. You know, emotionally traumatizing, professionally traumatizing. Yeah. And so when I went out on my own, I really wanted to figure out well, there must be a better way to do this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I came from an unusual background as a management consultant because I had an MBA, but it wasn't from one of the elite universities. I'd been a hippie, back to the lander. Raised my kids in the woods, grew vegetables. And oh, really? A few farm animals,. Those things. Uh-huh. And here I was dressing up in a suit and showing up in a corporate office and meeting with CEOs. And one thing that struck me very quickly in this process was that, and again, I couldn't have seen this at that moment, but it did strike me that the person with the power in a company, clearly was the CEO. That's where the decisions were made. That's who could make decisions without going through layers of bureaucracy. And lo and behold, that's where the power was in my family also, in a sense, my father being the CEO of the family, so to speak. And so these things did kind of connect for me. And I, I realized that if I was going to do this work long time, I wanted to be working with those who had the power and influence to make things change, make things happen and those were the CEOs. And so somebody recently said to me, you know, you've kind of surrounded your life with powerful men. And I guess there's truth to that. It certainly wasn't something I set out to do. right? But it has given me a lens into how people in power operate, how they make decisions, you know, who they trust, who they don't trust, and the best of them, how they see themselves both strength-wise and vulnerability-wise. Right. And that was a particularly wonderful part of my job was to sort of provide the spaces where CEOs could really open up and talk about what they're afraid of and mm. be with somebody who they could confide in, but also trusted as knowing something about business. And that was really a wonderful place for me to be through the next 30 years.
1: Wow there's just so much there. I think one thing, the first thing maybe that strikes me is the attenuation to power that yes. from your earliest time as a child within those family and, uh, you know, settings of all these poets coming. I mean, yes. artists can, they come across as very powerful people. And so you we think do. of poetry as this, lovely, you know, frilly thing, but it's like, (laughs) no, it's powerful. Terrific
0: competition and yeah.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that I think is so interesting and clearly it's like, these are all layers that come into play in this book is the, the way that um, I don't know if it's even a family structure, but who we are as humans, the ideas of, power, vulnerability, how to enact change and do it well, how to yes. unwrap a situation that's a bad thing and figure out the best way to deal with it, and yes. characters who may be neither all good nor all bad. Correct. But yes. I don't want to get ahead too much on that character thing.
0: But well, it's- if we took my dad just for a minute, yeah, you know, I think yeah. he's a great exemplar of that. You know, certainly the power that I felt was misused was clear once he started, you know, fondling me and kissing me and then actually molested me. Yet now looking back on it, I can also see still, you know, what I loved about him, which he was so much fun. He did tell great stories. He, you know, had great parties. Mm-hmm. Um he made fun happen. And he was also fascinating in in many ways, you know, in the things that he was talking about and thinking about. And so, you know, and that's the subject really of my first memoir, but you know, the complication of kind of holding both, holding a person and really being okay with, not okay with excusing, but okay right. within your own psychology, holding a person in sort of two lights, yeah. one that is not positive and one that is positive. And, you know, I think that helped me as I grew older and became an adult and was working with CEOs, both to ferret out the ones I didn't want to work with because mm-hmm. there were they were giving me signs of some sort, and also the ones that I really did want to work with. Because in that arena, you know, writers can be very open to feedback about their writing, but some aren't, and my father wasn't very mm. open to feedback from his editors, from my mother, you know, from from his friends. He wrote a lot of bad poems. Mm-hmm. He also wrote some really kind of brilliant poems. And so I was meeting these executives who actually wanted to get feedback. Mm-hmm. They wanted to know what others thought of them. They were trying to grow their own personhood, your own humanity, if you will. And so I was attracted to that clearly because, you know, my father hadn't been one of those. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I was intrigued, you know, that some men could be.
1: Trying to solve those things that didn't quite square with us in the earlier times.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So knowing this, and then as we get like a little into the book, there was also this family myth, legend, history, however you want to call it, about your grandfather. Correct. A.L. Eberhardt. Is it Eberhardt or Eberhardt? It's Eberhardt. Eberhardt. Eberhard. Okay. Yeah. Who was fired, quote unquote fired, asked yes. to resign by George Hormel. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the starting point of this. Right. And- there was an embezzler. So therefore our title, we have the the butcher, George Hormel. We have the embezzler, Ransom Thompson. And I found it funny his name was Ransom too. I mean, come on, right? how does this happen?
0: <laughs> how perfect is that?
1: <laughs> and your father, oh, you're not your father, your grandfather. grandfather, who was the fall guy, mm-hmm. A.L. Eberhardt. And so tell me how this story played in your family growing up.
0: Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, my dad was sort of well-known for his storytelling. He loved sharing events of the past with his friends, with the family, with whoever was around at a particular time. And I believe now, you know, that his childhood and growing up days in Austin, Minnesota were both also this dichotomy of both idyllic and also Stressful, probably traumatizing to him, and to some degree shameful, or shame-filled. I guess maybe is a mm. better term. So, as a little kid, what I heard was he was fired. Not there was no question about it. My grandfather was fired. Yeah, I heard that George Hormel was a bastard as my father called him. And you are doing air quotes as we (laughs) say that, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that's the term he used. And he also got this sort of curious pleasure out of talking about the embezzler and how much money he stole and how long he got away with it. But at the same time, you know, knew that it was an audacious act. And so there was this sort of confusing, somewhat Conflicting notion about the embezzler that I picked up as a little kid, also, but it was very clear about George Hormel and my grandfather. One was bad, one was good. Right. It was the black and white yeah. binary choice kind of for those two men, and I believed it growing up. Of course, you know, it's why just would you kid. not? Right? Why would I not? But as I got older and I started hearing these stories as a let's say adolescent or young adult in my 20s i was already dealing at least subconsciously with questions about my father's veracity in some of his stories and you know beginning to wonder which stories to believe and which not to believe or what what was embellished and what wasn't and then as i grew up even further you know and developed my own career I certainly learned very quickly, even, you know, when I was in management at this healthcare organization, men were... You know they were just people, you know, and they some of them were great leaders, some of them were not good leaders, but they weren't it wasn't so black and white, right you know right. you might like somebody very much and then see them do something in a leadership role that you didn't think was particularly effective, mm-hmm. but it wasn't this black or white kind of notion that I held, and so really, then the tension there I think is what kind of drove me to try to figure out what really happened in this family story from a hundred years ago and try to figure out how to tell it in book form. Right. So in the book,
1: we have a few different settings and scenes, if you will. We have the 100-year-old past, I'll call it, the early 1900s, yep. where you found so much documentation about the startup of George Hormel with the hog. Meat packing company. Yes. So it's a history excavation with that. And then we also have these visits that you made to Austin, Minnesota with various family members in 1995, 1997, and 2000. Am I correct?
0: It was three different.
1: Yeah. So when did you decide at what point in, was it a career decision? How did you decide I'm going to write this book? <laughs> and and I uh, guess my, like my subsequent, like when you made those visits way back then, cause even now, even though it doesn't feel like that long ago, it kind of was, I it guess it's a long time yeah. ago, 95, yeah. you know, did you know then what you were doing? I guess is a loose question.
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think I did know what I was doing, at least to a degree. Of course, I had no knowledge whether it would ever become a book, but I did feel very compelled by this story. It had all the parts of a good story. It had drama and crime and, you know, bigger-than-life characters and a great setting, a great place, You know, I grew up on the East Coast. This is middle America, you know, farmland territory. It had so many dimensions of a great story that even if I had not been a member of the family, I would Mm -hmm. have been intrigued by it. Mm -hmm. And I knew that because I heard from non members of the family who were always intrigued by it when I gave them the short story version of it. Um, including a couple of filmmakers who were very intrigued and trying to put it to film, Yeah, but they didn't have any money and I didn't have any money. So that never went anywhere, but I got enough validation. I think through those interactions that I felt like I was correct that it could make a good story. So when my cousin, my cousin Eloise Everhart and a couple of other cousins too, but especially Eloise and I used to talk quite a bit about this story Mm -hmm. when we family gatherings, etc., And we were incensed that our grandfather had been fired by this company. Mm-hmm. And she heard more or less the same stories from her father as I did from mine. He was a businessman, not a poet. He likely told them differently. But the facts were the facts, the family facts, and again, in air quotes, right. were kind of similar. She happened to have business in Southern Minnesota. And she happened to be in Austin a few times where she made connections with people. And one day she called me up and said, I've got to be there again. What if we spent the weekend rooting around in Austin to see what we can learn? Yeah, (laughs) And she's great. She's super fun to be with. And she was in Chicago. So we flew to Minneapolis, met up in Minneapolis. And that was my first trip was those three days with her. And at that time, I was starting to write down Scenes right. of this story. Yeah, frankly, I thought it would be part of poetic license that my first memoir. Right, and it was. So I'd written maybe let's just say ten thousand words, something in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Well, a full book is sixty to a hundred or more. So it wasn't. You know, it was going to be a chapter or a piece, but I felt like I needed to use that to help explain my father. Mm. However, my publisher. This is now flash forward twenty years. Um, Said, no, 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 this is your second book. This is not part of this book. Mm-hmm. So I, I introduced the characters because they were important in my father's story. Right. So I was actually starting to write things down. Yeah. And I thought, huh, I've got three days in Austin. I'm going to take my notepad and yeah. <laughs> ask as many questions as I can. Yeah. Also, by then, I was new in consulting, but I wasn't brand new. I'd probably had. Well, in 95, I would have had almost a decade of time consulting. And so I was very accustomed to meeting with people, sort of interviewing them, yeah. usually with the commission of the CEO. So I wasn't afraid of making up questions before I met with somebody to think about what I wanted them to tell me. And so I took copious notes. And thank goodness I did, because I drew on those a lot, of course, and the two subsequent trips. Mm hmm. So by that time, yes, I did imagine it as a story of some kind written down. I just didn't know right, yet exactly right. what. Well, it
1: I mean, it certainly reads as highly documented. So it comes across as very credible. I mean, and I was, you know, wondering, gosh, has she been working on this for 30 years or whatever? You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. truly, yes. And that's what happens, I think, when sometimes these – questions and especially with family history, it's really, it's like these things are in our bones. And when we begin digging, yes, you recognize things and then you just can't help wanting to dig some more about it. And I do identify with starting to write a thing and you go, this is a story that I have to say, but then there's this other side track to it. And you're like, well, is it part of this book? Or maybe it's some whole other book, but yeah. I want to get to the reading because I want, I, it's just so good. So I want you to have a chance to do that.
0: Yeah. So I I mean, do you want me to say a little bit about the structure and that now or?
1: Yeah. Um, whatever you think might help us as we go into to the reading.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing that might be helpful is that, so the book is told, in largely two time frames. One is around the early 1900s, from 1900 to 1922, when my grandfather was fired yeah. <laughs> by the Hormel Company. And then my times in Austin, which were, as you mentioned, 1995 to 2000, and a little bit after that. So those are basically the two time blocks. And one of my challenges when I was told, no, 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 this is a separate book, was to figure out okay, how do I take these 10,000 words or whatever it was, right. and sort of meter them out enough to make a book, and then what do I do more to make a book? Right. And it dawned on me pretty quickly that my arc, the story of my arc of sort of coming to terms with what I think happened was definitely part of the story. I, the facts about what happened in 1900 to 22, you know, some could dispute a few facts, but a lot of them were known. They're recorded. There's none mm-hmm. for debate. But how I came into the story, what I believed at the start, and what I believe now at the end, I won't even call it the end, mm-hmm. because I do believe that I'll learn more. Like yeah. I'm doing a book event in Austin, and, oh. and I'm sure I'll meet with somebody or talk to somebody who knows something else yeah. that I don't know. So I felt like, okay, then I think there's kind of a braid here, yeah. And lots of memoirs are braided. Right. It's a okay structure for a memoir, um, and it's not perfectly braided. It's not like every. It's not A B A B A B, but it might be A B B B A A B B. You know. So I kind of got to that. Fairly quickly, but I mean that in the last few years since I've totally okay. rewritten the whole thing. I um, see. No work was done on it for probably close to 20 years at the peak of my career. It wasn't really, right. well, not not 20 years, but 10 anyway, 10 or 12 years until I retired. And then okay. I wanted to get back to it.
1: Okay. And just to kind of slip in here, because you've mentioned you did publish a first memoir, Poetic license, and that was largely about your father. Correct. Which now I can't wait to read that, but I have read this one first. So, was this written largely after you finished the first one?
0: Yes, yes, okay. largely. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was all I could do to get that one out, and then um, once I sort of moved into the publicity phase, and after that, really, I it's really been over the last two and a half years that that I've put this together. Okay, I that and learned a sense. lot from the first round, of course, in how I bet. to, how I to write a book sure. and how to yeah, put it
1: together. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's dig in then, shall we? And, you know, sure. as folks who have heard Daring to Tell before know, I'm often picking things right smack dab in the middle, but I'm not doing that this time. This is a mystery as much as it is a memoir. And so I was thinking about it and I said, we can't do the middle. It won't make any sense. So we will start at the beginning. We are going to skip around a little bit. So whenever you're ready, you can begin with chapter one.
0: Okay, thank you. One, flimsy pretext, Austin, Minnesota, 1922. In late January 1922, Alpha LaRue Eberhardt peered out the multi-paned windows of George Hormel's executive office in Austin, Minnesota, at the Red Cedar River below. The river was frozen stiff as death, splitting the meatpacking town in two. The afternoon temperature had barely risen since daybreak. A biting wind drove across the plains, blowing clouds of snow and factory steam eastward and rattling the window's glass. I imagine A.L., as my grandfather was called, stood his ground, undaunted, eyes sure, as he was forced to resign from the company he had spent 20 years helping to build. The men's words were brief that day. A.L. knew there was no point in arguing with his high-strung boss. George Albert Hormel was unlikely to change his mind. Maybe that day, as in photographs, George's right hand palmed his thigh his fingers spreading south, as if ordering a dog to sit. George's skin was paler than AL's, his hair thicker and parted left to right, his nose nearly piercing his upper lip. His pinched eyes nipped the skin behind his wire-rimmed glasses, conjuring a scolding teacher dressing down an errant student. When the ticking clock on his wall struck the next hour, packing house workers would hang up their aprons and head home. Despite the bespoke suits and starched shirt collars worn by these men, theirs was a killing business, an abattoir that turned plump animals into food, splattering blood on the meat cutter's aprons and dropping guts into buckets on the floor. The facts leading up to my paternal grandfather's forced resignation were clear. Six months earlier, the company had discovered a nearly $1.2 million embezzlement by its star comptroller, Ransom Josiah Thompson. The defalcation, as it was called back then, had taken place over the course of nearly a decade. Newsprint across 1,300 cities had inked the story, with the New York Times headline reading, Report shows embezzler got 1187000 After the embezzlement, the value of one share of Hormel stock plummeted almost to zero, scattering the company's assets and reputation to the wind, putting at risk a 1,000 employees, and cratering my grandfather's personal wealth, much of it in Hormel stock. As A.L. watched Thompson being marshaled off to jail, town gossip swirled like eddies of pork fat draining off the Hormel cutting floor. That January day, my grandfather trudged out to his Cadillac Suburban, hauling up the collar of his heavy Chicago-tailored wool topcoat against the cold. Snowdrifts felted his pant legs. Even the howling blow couldn't entirely conceal the sound of squealing pigs being prodded from outdoor pens onto the killing floor at the back of the factory. Across the Red Cedar River, A.L. pulled up the long, winding driveway to his estate. Snowfall blanketed the regal white peonies he and his wife, Lena Lowenstein, had planted three years earlier, which lit up the month of June each summer like puffy clouds dancing over the southern Minnesota plains. The couple's second son, 17-year-old Richard, who would become my father, ever hopeful for his father's afternoon return from work, was shoveling drifts from the family's front veranda. Inside their lavish home, Lena lay dying. Whatever my grandfather said to his family about being fired that day, for it had been a resignation only in George Hormel's imagination, he penned a letter to his closest friend and business confidant, George Hastings Swift, heir to the giant Chicago meatpacking company Swift and Company. You will probably be as much surprised as I was to know I have resigned my position, requested by Mr. Hormel on what seemed a very flimsy pretext. George Hormel's flimsy pretext and my grandfather's firing were legend in my family. My father cast them as Shakespearean tragedy, or the Horatio Alger story, if Alger had lost his American dream. Six decades after the events, my father still wept when describing his father's fall from grace and his mother's early death to cancer. Thompson's embezzlement in Austin, Minnesota, and the weight of company and family shame were traumas for my father, which got taken up by me. As a kid, I was spellbound by dad's telling of the events. But by the mid-1990s, when I was in my 40s, I was reckoning with a complicated man I knew him to be, a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet who surrounded himself with the best writers of the 20th century, from Robert Frost to James Dickey, a man who championed women poets and loved my mother deeply, yet had engaged in multiple affairs throughout his marriage, and had on one occasion, when I was 17, molested me in my bedroom. He was my first experience of a powerful, confusing man. He was known for telling stories that entertained his fans, but I'd learned as an adult that some of those stories were exaggerated and others simply untrue. While his tales calcified into family myth, I no longer knew whether to trust them, or his tears. By all accounts, my father and his two siblings enjoyed an idyllic childhood in Austin, but the idol ended that bitter January day when A.L. was called to George Hormel's office. If my father polished his stories with the elan of the literary star he would become, I was looking for a way to square them with my own lived experience. I wanted to understand my Midwestern legacy within the broad sweep of its geographic scale and our early nation building. I never knew my paternal grandparents. Both died long before I was born. I didn't really know what to believe about Alpha LaRue Eberhardt, George Hormel, or Ransom Thompson. What I knew was that throughout my early career as a management consultant, as I partnered with CEOs, mostly men back then, Stories of the three men in Austin haunted me. I was working with clients to help them change their companies into places where both business and people could thrive. I watched how the CEOs operated, learned how they made decisions, took in how they told their own stories, each one of them giving me a reference point against which to think about my grandfather. If my father poetically described his father as six feet of manhood and not a mark of fear, Few top executives I knew had no fear. If my father cast George Hormel as the villain, a bastard all greed for laying his father so low, I knew such descriptions were rarely that clean. As for the embezzler, my father both marveled at his ingenious stealing and railed at his audacity, but chose to blame him less than he did his father's former boss. In 40 years advising hundreds of powerful men I had occasionally been in their corner suites as they considered a firing. I knew their primary reasons. Now, I wanted to know how George A. Hormel and Company, a brand-name business that would become the $11 billion conglomerate it is today, got started, how the fates of these three men were sealed on the banks of the Red Cedar River, how a company nearly brought to its knees in 1921 was declared by its bankers as too big to fail, and— what role any of this had to do in shaping me. Chapter 2. Company Town, Austin, Minnesota, 1995. Out the window of our compact rental car, soybean fields stretch like billowing sheets on a laundry line. My cousin Eloise Everhart and I are traveling on Interstate 35 from the Minneapolis airport to Austin, 100 miles south. Blessed with a crop of thick salt and pepper hair and blushed cheeks, Elle is a classic beauty, with the dark brows of our grandmother and the dancing eyes of our grandfather. At 60, she is 15 years my senior. That used to matter when she was 25 and I was 10, but it doesn't now. We've set aside three days to explore this place our fathers reminisce about, and I hope to leave with a clearer story of what happened here before either of us were born. The cerulean sky is nearly free of clouds. Wisps of fluff sail untethered. Acres fly by so fast it's hard to catch their detail. The vast open space of Southern Minnesota is freeing after the charming but sometimes claustrophobic hills of New Hampshire and a hefty consulting season. A kaleidoscope of questions hangs overhead as L drives and I stare out the window. Why, if Austin was so pivotal to our fathers, did neither of them ever bring us here? Dad's stories tangle in my brain like lines left unfurled on a sailboat. Maybe I'm just here to clear up a few of those lines. How old was I when I was your flower girl, I ask Elle, having half forgotten the details of a favorite memory. The photograph of me at her wedding is a cherished one. She in a fitted virginal gown, me and my white dotted Swiss, beaming up at my beautiful cousin, squeezing her hand so tight I can feel the hurt. Ten, Elle says, her cheeks flushed the same pink as the bouquet of baby roses I clutched in two hands that day. I fill Eloise in on my consulting work. In tandem with my 45th birthday, my company has just reached its 10-year mark. Friends tell me I work too much but the long-term partnerships I've formed with CEOs as they transform their company cultures exhilarate me. I like seeing positive change happen. Eloise is a fundraiser for the American Friends Service Committee and lives in Chicago. She is sometimes called to southern Minnesota to meet with prominent donors and has been to Austin several times where she has met people who knew or knew of our grandparents. Staring out the window, I think of the summer I got as close to Austin as I ever have until now. In 1968, I was 17, away from home for two months, working on a service project with Mexican-American migrant workers employed by the Oatana Canning Company, a short jog northwest of Austin. A memory surfaces. I glance at Elle and share it with her. Seasonal employees are packed hip to hip, I tell her, like standing pickup sticks, in the backs of open trucks and driven to the fields where they will spend 12 hours harvesting asparagus and strawberries bent over long rows in the hot sun. I'm playing outside a single room, cinder block home at the migrant camp with Maria and her toddler sister, Elena, while her older sisters and parents work in the fields. Maria is hungry and goes inside. A couple minutes later, I look through the open door and see her leaning over a gas flame fixing a pan of something for Elena's lunch. Her cotton dress drapes too close to the flame and catches fire. The next thing I know, I'm rolling her in a blanket and the room stinks of singed cotton. Just thinking of it, I'm shaken. It was terrifying, I say to Elle. Looking back, I think it was the first time I realized my own privilege. The closest thing I know to this vast Minnesota sky is the rose-washed reach of Penobscot Bay, Maine, where my family summary. Here, I feel like Ellen and I are in a massive bubble with a sky-colored circus tent overhead and soybeans stretching to the earth's end. The bubble seems to contain today and every story we've heard about southern Minnesota from our fathers. But how strong is this bubble? And knowing myself, how far will I go to find out Elle's mission for this weekend seems to be to set the family record right about our grandfather, that he was wronged by George Hormel. We've procured an appointment with the Hormel Corporate Archivist because we've heard that a rumor still floats around the company and in some parts of Austin that our grandfather was complicit in Ransom J. Thompson's embezzlement. Publicly, I can't believe that's true. Privately, I don't know what to believe, but I know my family's stories are rarely uncomplicated. It's not right what the company did, Al says, after we pass a sign indicating we're more than halfway to Austin. Our grandfather was a good man, a family man, and he built that company. That's what we've heard, I say. I never knew Dad to hate anyone, but he hated George Hormel. Al and George were friends. George's wife Lillian and grandmother Lena were too. And Hormel fired Al while Lena was dying. I shake my head. I don't know how our grandfather got through that year. L sighs. Me either. The lush, weed-free miles of soybeans lull me. I hope I'm open to learning whatever I need to learn about my grandfather. I'm not here to prove his innocence. I've only started to look through the four large boxes of his letters and business documents held within my father's literary archives at Dartmouth College, I don't know what to believe, but I want to test a few nascent speculations while I'm here. Like it or not, and sometimes I don't, I've always wanted to know the truth about everything. A new entrepreneur client once told me that trait might get me in trouble in the short run, but was the only way to live. The CEOs with whom I consult want the truth I see inside their companies. It's only when they're grounded in reality that they can make their best decisions. If family lore holds that A.L. was devastatingly wronged by his boss, did my grandfather own any part of it? If George Hormel was a bastard, as my father said, might he have been anything more? Maybe my grandfather was neither the saint my father described, nor the sinner George Hormel fired.
1: Okay, and so now we're going to skip a little ahead in the same chapter.
0: You know, we could have been rich, I say, leaning into L. Really rich. I figured it out from the financial records in Dad's archives. If A.L. had been able to hang on to his Hormel stock, we'd be filthy rich, just like George Hormel's grandchildren. But money, L. smiles, she, the frugal wife of a minister, it might have corrupted us. I could stand a little corruption right now, I think to myself. My divorce five years ago, my two children headed to college. My growing consulting company, money flowing in just about matching money flowing out. I don't know what I'd feel about the level of wealth we might have inherited, but my curiosity here has never been about the lost money, even if the specter of it is seductive. Really, it is about these three protagonists who've occupied my family stage. I feel I need to inhabit them to try to understand who they were, what they did, and why to the extent that's even possible. I want to claim the grandfather and grandmother I never knew. I want to tell their story as I figure out mine. Okay, and then one more
1: little jump ahead. We're going to skip the next chapter, which is kind of an introduction to George Hormel. And there's a few people that we meet, including the Catherwoods. So maybe do you want to just give a a tiny little who they are. Yeah.
0: Sure. Roger Catherwood was my father's best friend growing up in Austin. And as teenagers, they used to have these wonderful adventures on the Cedar river we would hear about. Um, He in this scene has died. uh, I think it was about a year before this took place. And we were meeting with his widow, Betty Catherwood, who still lived in Austin. Chapter four. Oakwood Cemetery, Austin, 1995. Elle is waking up from her nap, so I fill her in line for line, breathlessly, on everything I've learned about George Hormel. I had no idea he grew up so poor, I tell her. It's late in the afternoon, and Betty wants us to take a walk with her at Oakwood Cemetery, where our grandparents and great-grandparents are buried, as are George and Lillian Hormel, Samuel Doak Catherwood and his wife, and their son and Betty's husband, Roger Catherwood. The expansive cemetery borders the Red Cedar River and is graced by overarching bur oak trees, a particular genus known in Minnesota for their green, waxy leaves in summer. Now, in October, the leaves are mostly brown. I've never spent much time in graveyards, but they're known for being good places to walk and reflect. With a map from the gatehouse, I look for my grandparents' stones while Betty and Elle head off to place flowers at Roger's marker. Four modest rectangular blocks of granite sit flat against the ground at the Eberhardt plot. There's A.L.'s parents, Joseph Snyder Eberhardt and Emma Mae Swift Eberhardt. There's Alpha LaRue and Lena Eberhardt. I crouch to touch the simple rocks to feel the cool, rough granite abrade my fingers. It's the closest I've ever been to these forebears. I wonder again why my father never brought me here. Seeing, carved in stone, how young my grandmother Lena was when she died, just 48, brings tears to my eyes. I lay flowers between the markers. Not far away from where I stand is the 25-foot-tall monolith that memorializes George and Lillian Hormel. The river pulls me to where it separates the two sides of town, and I find a grassy spot to sit on its west bank. I'm glad for this lulling water, the pungent scent of bur oak leaves above me, my mind full of emerging perceptions of George Hormel. But if my head is with him, my heart is now with my grandfather and grandmother. Thinking of AL's forced resignation from the Hormel company gets me thinking about being fired once myself. In my case, I was called to the office of a consulting client. We have things to talk about, my client said over the phone. When I arrived at the small conference room, my first alarm was in seeing not just my primary client, but four stone-faced executives sitting around the table. Gretchen, come sit. Through the next 30 minutes, we didn't talk so much as one of the executives berated me as she became increasingly red-faced. This wasn't a firing in a few words, like my grandfather's. I could hardly find a space to speak, though, like A.L., I knew there was no point in arguing. They were unlikely to back down. Halfway through this executive's oration, I realized that what she was saying reflected things I'd heard from the company's employees over the prior several months. I'd been brought in to canvas their workers. The company wanted to know if its employees were well enough prepared for its anticipated next stage of growth. The company had a strong brand, a loyal customer following and high quality products, but employee morale had plummeted after a spate of firings that the company owners had deemed essential. The remaining employees were watching their backs, worried about the security of their jobs, which led them to keep to themselves about quality issues and inefficiencies. There was fear of being let go with no knowledge of what they were doing wrong. I'd seen this before in family owned businesses where the company would assume, as it grew past its first hundred employees and toward multiple physical sites, that the same parochial communication practices used with 20 employees would work with hundreds. As the owner's emissary carried on, I understood that just as the employees had crossed an unidentified boundary, I had too. I'd been too candid about what I'd heard inside. The company had said it wanted my true assessment but I'd failed to notice a hesitation in the owner's voice when he said it. Being fired hurt. I felt humiliated and concerned for my reputation as a startup consultant. Back at my office, I called my mentor, Dan, then executive vice president of a global human resources company, whose regional office was in Manchester, New Hampshire. We made an appointment to meet later in the week. Dan was a large man, both in height and girth, I'd met him in business school, where he'd served as an outside advisor to MBA students. He had a huge heart and decades of human talent experience across three continents. At the top of the tallest building in the state, the glass walls of his office looked over the Ameskeg River and its iconic five-story brick mill buildings, symbols of a dying woolen industry. So, he said, tell me what happened. I told the whole story from the beginning. I'll say one thing, he said when I was done. If you're not fired by at least one client a year, you're probably not pushing hard enough. Really? I leaned forward. Say more. Clients pay you well for your advice, but they won't always like hearing it, he shrugged. If you're good, you're pushing people to be better, to do things differently, and some will resist. Look at it this way. If you didn't tell them what you heard, you'd be colluding in their dysfunctional system. It would have been a waste of their money and your time. The company is clearly not ready for the hard work of changing its culture, at least not now.
1: This is just so good. (laughs) (laughs) And I always look at these things, frankly, so literally when I read them. And I think, when you were getting fired, did you think of your grandfather? No, no, of
0: course not. But, I of, right, I thought of me being fired when I was out there, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, of course. But I do. So I guess I'm curious more. I have a lot of things about all of sure. these overlays of generations and what happened. And as you've thought about these ish, these experiences, whatever that went on in the past and you take your corporate consultant head to it, do you think about what you might have advised to George <laughs> Hormel? Like, do you think about your grandfather's response or what happened? Like, how? I mean, I just find the business parallels mm-hmm. so uncanny. And so I, when and how did they all overlap?
0: Well, I think probably on some subliminal level they were overlapped, kind of as I grew into yeah. these role into the role of a consultant. Obviously, as I began to write the book more seriously a few years ago, I was struck by the parallels myself, perhaps in a more inca- uncanny way, as you suggested, than I even had before. Right. For instance, I didn't know that I was going to put in that example of me being fired into this book. I had no idea that I was going to do that. But as I was in the development process with my developmental editor, it occurred to me that, oh my gosh, I know what it feels like to be fired. Mm -hmm. And partly I want to use my experience as a way to deepen my understanding of my grandfather's experience. And though My father, for instance, would never have considered that my grandfather felt any shame. Mm -hmm. I find it a little hard to believe that he didn't, whether he expressed it or not. That any of us who have been fired—most, ninety-five percent of us who have been fired—feel a little shame. Mm -hmm. You know, like what did I do wrong? How could I have done this differently? Particularly if you're faced with no job, no money, no whatever. You know, it's not just the immediate impact of the firing, but it is over time, there are those feelings of what did I do and h- how could I have managed this differently? It's mm-hmm. hard for me to believe that my grandfather, as smart as he was, didn't have some of those feelings at some point, mm-hmm. expressed maybe differently than I would express them. Uh, I mean, I broke down in tears in the parking lot after I got fired. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. you know, we're emotional human beings. And um, right. unfortunately, and this gets into another topic in a way, but in, unfortunately, in all of my research and all of the letters that I read from my grandfather to George Swift, at, who was the heir of Gustavus Swift, who started the swifting company, meatpacking company, I never found a letter. I, I only came kind of close to something that sounded just a little bit like self-revelatory or really feeling a little bit of that shame. It, and, it, you know, I had to sort of fill in the bounds a little bit. I mean, this is a man in 1922. The culture, the surroundings, all of that probably would have mitigated bit of that. right? Or, you know, it wouldn't have been the same perhaps as now, what his reaction might have been. But I got just a glimpse of it, I thought. And so Mm -hmm. I did feel like using my example was one form of validation for me that there was shame for the family, even though my father never used that word, as I recall. But the way he responded to the story even decades later suggested the shame slash trauma to him as a young man. Of course, at the same time, his mother's dying of cancer. I was going to say, that's
1: another huge facet of this. I mean, I think obviously you juxtapose them. And so I pick up on that feeling, but I don't know how you get fired in this way as your wife is dying and you lose everything that you have that that does not bring out shame in some capacity yeah and and you're right it was a different time and it might not have been something that he
0: revealed but yeah yeah no, absolutely, and you know, if you couple in my grandmother's, you know, really hard death from cancer when cancer care was almost nil, you know, the, all right. they did was throw a lot of morphine and whiskey at her, basically. Um, yeah. And these awful X-ray treatments. Mm, you yeah. Know, they were supposed to be treatments. It's hard not to be very sympathetic and empathetic with my father's expression of hatred towards George Hormel. Right. Right. And you know, I get close to expressing a little of that towards the end of the book, because I think he made choices, you know, that a CEO can make. Right. And I don't fault him really for making it. But I do think that that feeling of mine about being fired was just such a powerful avenue into kind of insight about what my grandfather might have felt deep down inside. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, one of my many notes that I wrote as I was reading through this was how some stories are so big that I think it takes the distance perspective of generations.
0: Yes. Yes. To, Great point. to
1: try and unpack what happened. I mean, can we know? Now, yes, this right. is only the very tip of the iceberg here and <laughs> this whole book goes on, you do so much research and uncover documents, and and like that excavation part is extraordinary. Also, it's funny, as you were talking about George Hormel and the characterization that you grew up with, that he was clearly the bastard, and your grandfather was wronged, and then Ransom Thompson, whose nickname was Cy for Cyclone, because when he was a kid, he was like a (laughs) all over the place. Terror, a cyclone terror (laughs) all over the place. His character, boy, you go, are some people, they're like who they are is in their bones. And can you ever get out of your own way in a lifetime? Again, I'm like, (laughs) I don't want to say too much. But when I wrote down about these three characters who are really delved into in a lot of detail. In a funny way, I have to say, the things we learned about George Hormel, who, by the way, is in case we haven't said it already, is who started Hormel, Hormel Foods, which is an entirely different company today, but he was really innovative. Yes. He was a super hard worker. I mean, I sort of, where's my little note about him? What did I say? <laughs> to me, he was clearly like this powerful, I, I don't want to say the good guy, but he kind of came across to me as a good guy. He,
0: I think he was in many, many ways. Yeah, yeah. He was.
1: And Cy Thompson is clearly the bad guy. I Maybe this is what you intended, <laughs> I don't know, but I, I think your grandfather the question, this is the mystery. Who was your grandfather? And did he have culpability? Was he clearly wronged? Is anyone ever 100% wronged? Great questions. I mean, maybe. I We
0: don't know. Yeah. And how can we know? I mean, we can do the best we can. I have spent years, as you pointed out, trying to understand trying yeah. to find documents trying to talk to people and i still have to say as i think i did in the author's note this is my story this is the best i can do to piece together what i believe happened um at least in large part but certainly there are could be very critical details that I couldn't get my hands on that I'll never know that don't even exist. Maybe they were burned up or thrown away or, were never recorded. You know, mm, um, yeah. And so maybe it's not even possible to know. And so I think in my author's note I mentioned that this is a work of, research, memory and speculation, um, or my own imagination or something like that. There is a role for speculation in memoir, and I use speculation in this book. I tried to base it on facts. For instance, I speculated about the clothing that George's son Jay Hormel was wearing on a particular day. Right, that's based on reading about what women wore back then who were wealthy and you know could afford silk scarves, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what she wore that day, so that's pure speculation, but it is built on research. Likewise, really in the bigger story here, you know, about my grandfather, I tried to speculate about what I think happened based on both research, but also my own knowledge of how companies work, how CEOs work, what happens when a company is about to go belly up, the fact that there are fall guys, mostly Mm -hmm. in these kinds of situations. And it doesn't mean that my grandfather did anything wrong necessarily. Right. Um, So, you know, no spoilers here. But I do think that, for instance, I think this is fair enough to share, I think that even in my visits to Austin, when I asked certain people who knew at that time, era 2000, current day CEOs of Hormel, or just past CEOs, and talked to them about this, two of them said, Guilt by association only. Mm. My grandfather was not involved in the embezzlement. Well, that's as close as I can get to the company's story, you know. Right. And in George Hormel's autobiography, as well as Cy Thompson's autobiography, neither one of them blamed anyone but Thompson. But, you know, the story is complicated. And mm-hmm. there are places where George Hormel I believe, could have made different decisions that would have had a different trajectory for our family. Mm. It's not that I blame him. I don't blame him. I think he had every right, practically, to do what he did. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will say that as a CEO, given what he had just been through. Mm-hmm. And it was not only my f- grandfather who got fired, by the way. Oh. I didn't go into this because it was just a whole nother side story. Kind yeah, of, yeah. But there were six or seven other people. It oh. was my grandfather who was, I think, the highest up and the one that had been the face of the company that everybody knew across the nation. Right. But there were other executives fired. He was cleaning house. Yeah. CEOs do that all the time when something gets discovered like an embezzlement they feel like they have to clean house. So in the end, I can't really blame George Hormel for firing, but the way he fired him and some of the specifics about what occurred in the aftermath of that firing, which I'm not going to reveal right now, yeah, but yeah. are indicative of choices I think he could have made differently. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And another thing that totally surprised me, there are like,
0: Buried next to each other in the cemetery. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Did that completely shock you? (laughs) It didn't shock me because this was a small town. I mean, there were 5,000 people of Austin when my grandfather moved there. Yeah, Probably built up to maybe 8,000 or something after he left. I'm not exactly sure. It was a small town. And the Eberharts and the Catherwoods, who were the corporate attorneys, and my grandfather, I mean, the Hormels and a few other prominent families were very close. And they were a club, if you will. Right. And so they were, some of them were in the same church. Some of them were, you know, they, they were all sort of connected. And at the time when people were buying their cemetery lots, I suppose they wanted to be near each mm-hmm. other. Yeah. Um, and yeah. With your
1: grandmother dying so young. Yes. Maybe that was a
0: factor. Well, um, his, my grandfather's parents, so my great grandparents had died also that same year that he was oh, wow. that the embezzlement was discovered. My grandmother was ill and his father died that that summer too. So it was, that a, was a bad year. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really bad year for Ale. Yeah. yeah.
1: The other thing that I wanted to ask about overall, and that you have a line that you read here, I hope I'm open to learning. <laughs> whatever i need to learn about my grandfather <laughs> what were you scared of you know did you, were you afraid of really discovering something you didn't want to know
0: sure i was i was i wasn't scared of learning that from my personal perspective i don't think that well i don't know i mean how can i know i don't know what i really would have thought if i had learned absolutely unequivocally that he knew about the embezzlement and that he had something to do with it, you know, directly. I don't know what I would have thought. But I think I would have thought, I I would have tried to think of it as sort of humanistically as I could. What I was most afraid of, though, really was harming you know, the impressions of all my family members Mm, and my cousins specifically, because they were in my generation. We all heard the same stories. We all grew up idolizing A.L. and Lena, who we never met. And my brother, clearly, you know, so my generation of family members, I was afraid of learning something that would really have to put to rights kind of the family mythology. Mm. Now, I do think i have somewhat put to rights in family mythology. Again, without spoilers, I won't share that stuff. But I do. I I was afraid of that, and and yet I use the word hope. You know, instructively, because mm-hmm. I was kind of hoping. I play this line between quasi investigative journalist, which I am not professionally. Mm-hmm. Let me be clear. Yeah. Um, but just a ton of experience interviewing people, and you know, a memoirist, a a granddaughter of the protagonist. And so I think my word hope there was a nod to the granddaughter, you know, that I I hope I'm going to be open to whatever I hear. And Mm -hmm. that's the way you have to go into really investigating or researching in in the way that I did, you know, speaking with humans, people about what they knew and stuff. You sort of have to go in that way, I think.
1: And it does really speak to the ways that at once we're always multiple people, yes. you know, like, yes. who would I be with this hat and who would I be with that hat and what does it all mean? And it's, I don't know. I mean, those are the questions that really, I always try to dig into those. Like, yes. how can we be so many contradictory <laughs> things at the same time? <laughs> right. Just, yes. It's really hard, but yet it is so important. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like our world demands that we do that. And yet this whole black and white everything, it's not always appropriate. I don't know. I'm getting super grandiose here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, but I think you're drawing on, you know, at least one lesson for me from working on this book of really recognizing more deeply than I ever have, perhaps, how complicated human beings are, and how much like me, my grandfather was, and how much like him I am. And if I were in the exact same shoes as he was in at that time, what would I have done differently? Would I have done anything differently? This embezzlement went on for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. People saw the fruits of the embezzlement being the money being spent. 60 miles south of Austin, in this grandiose chicken farm (laughs) um, turned into an amusement park. So, you know, these things were all around them. Would I have noticed it any differently? Would I have done anything different? I really don't know. I mean, these were smart executive men. My grandfather, George Hormel, and others didn't see it. Mm -hmm. And who am I to judge on that? You know, I've certainly been in denial at times in my life and I have not seen things that I didn't want to see. So I think, you know, part of the lesson for me is that we're all, we do our best, you know, with what we have. And I think those of us who want to grow and develop ourselves work at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And those who don't, don't,
1: um, Right. Sometimes that those who don't don't is like <laughs> crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. lengths that people go to often to not to not. And, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What was most daring about this book for you if that's a question you can answer without a spoiler? I should have thought you might
0: answer. <laughs> given the title of your yeah. but I I actually didn't um Great question. Let me just think for a second. I think, well, I'm going to say this. I hope this will come across in the right way or as I really intended to. I think the most daring thing for me was about writing about the Hormel history. Mm -hmm. This is an iconic brand. It is an $11 billion company. It is revered and also despised, depending on who you talk to, as all big companies are, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I could say, just the granddaughter of one of the protagonists. And so I do believe that that is one of the daring things about me writing this book. I. Yeah thought about that long and hard. I talked to my publisher about it long and hard. And I worked long and hard to try to give all due respect to George Hormel himself, and the company that he founded, wherever I could, because he deserves it. Mm -hmm. And, and I believe, as you did, that he was an innovator. I mean, just the ambition and the direction and the Coming through the long, hard life that he had in Toledo to become just a butcher. Yeah. I don't mean just a butcher, but just a butcher yeah. in his own mind. Right. And then to want to become a meat packer and then to want to compete with George Swift, who had millions of dollars by then, is really quite remarkable. It's a remarkable story of an early entrepreneur in our country. And I admire entrepreneurs and I respect the kind of hard labor they put in to, you know, make their companies great in whatever ways they do. And I think, you know, whereas there's been one other sort of book about the embezzlement really put together by a woman who who had read the embezzlers autobiography, which was done in serial issues and published in the local newspaper in Mm. 1922 or four or five or whenever he actually wrote it. And... I think most people who have picked up on the embezzlement story have, if anything, sort of bashed the Hormel company, and I don't intend to do that, and it's not what I believe anyway. When I look at George Hormel, I feel pretty good about what I see in most ways. I do think he took advantage of an opportunity, um, and that's as close as I'll get, to sort of make it even harder for my grandfather when he was forced to resign.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So I I think you know in terms of daring that's probably um and I I will say I've been incredibly pleased that the Hormel company gave me permission to use three of their images, three that I really wanted. One of George Hormel holding his cleaver because he can butcher a hog with one blow as I heard from people. Yeah. Um, he could and
1: and he knew his way around inside a hog. <laughs> inside. That was one of that's my so favorites. Sure. I was like, "Oh my god. I know
0: The cover of the book is, you know, used with permission. And, um, and so I've had some communication with the company, but I will say that it's been very limited. And my direct communication with them over the last three years has not rendered response, except from attorneys for these kinds of permission reasons. So um, that's fine. That's fine with me. And um, we'll see. Exactly. I know. I was going to say, we will see. Well, I'm
1: thinking we might want to have a second conversation. Oh, I love that. That is the spoiler. So, if you would like to do that, like (laughs) let's let's talk about that because there's so much we couldn't talk about because I think people need to read for themselves this mystery, this true mystery through time. I mean, I could talk more about what it must have. I felt. With you, what it felt like to like walk in these places where your grandparents walked around, and try to envision what life was like for them in another, another time in these very places, and that is such a oof! I don't have words to describe (laughs) that. Very humbling, really, and um and grand Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Like wow, they were right right here. here. Right,
0: they touched this earth yeah yeah, yeah no, it, it is very personal very personal yeah, very personal yeah, and yeah i'd love to is come there back. Any- that would be great great well we should we will do
1: that and i was gonna say is there anything else you want i know we were gonna talk about power
0: <laughs> maybe maybe better you, do you wanna-
1: in the next one i know I- that's like a big topic to take <laughs> on <laughs> right <laughs> at the end. But definitely I can't thank you enough, Gretchen, for this conversation, for your book. It is fantastic. It will obviously be in the
0: show notes. People can get it
1: available right now. Hooray. Get yes. it. Get it hot off the press.
0: Yes. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It's been really a delight talking with you. I knew it would be. Thank you're, you. You're a great interviewer and give great space for response. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you for being such a good reader.
1: The experience of reading, and for me, reading memoir in particular, is a chance to climb into someone else's skin. And Gretchen's story was a great way to try and embody so many things not really all that familiar to me. I have never been fired. I have not been legacy to a brush with near fortune. To feel those things alongside things that do make sense to me, like living a professional experience that ends up mirroring a family situation in some of those deep and uncanny ways, yeah. One thing that I found a little funny as I was in the midst of reading this book and preparing for my conversation with Gretchen, as I was watching the TV, I saw an ad for Spam coincidence? It was a staple in my lunchbox and on our table when I was a kid. I will say that much. Gretchen and I have scheduled a date for our spoiler conversation. It's going to take place after she does a book tour stop in Austin, Minnesota, so I am very much looking forward to hearing about that. I'll likely release the follow-up conversation later in the summer at some point. However, if you are sure to follow this podcast it will automatically pop up in your podcast app queue when I do and so I hope you will do that if you haven't done so already episodes post on the first Tuesday of every month and occasional bonus episodes when I try to release them the other way to stay in touch with Daring to Tell? Through my website, MichelleRado.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter or shoot me a note, and I hope you will do both. Do get yourself a copy of Gretchen Charrington's book, The Butcher, The Embezzler, and The Fall Guy, a family memoir of scandal and greed in the meat industry. It is a great read, memoir, history, mystery, all in one. Thank you again to Gretchen for her time. Thank you to Phil Rado, my musician husband, for our theme, Make Me Brave. And most of all, thanks to you for making it to the very end of yet another episode and for daring to listen. I'll catch you next month.
0: And nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall. Or taking away the ground. Taking away the ground. It's like taking away the ground.